Well, good evening, everyone. My name's Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And it's my tremendous pleasure, um, on behalf both of the Ralph Miliband program and the Department of Sociology, to introduce our speaker tonight, Professor Theda Scotchpole. Um, Professor Scotchpole is professor of both sociology and government at Harvard University, and she has, I think it's fair to say, a formidable reputation both as a comparative and historical sociologist and as a student of American politics. She's published some two dozen books, and you'll be pleased that I'm, to hear that I'm not going to list them all tonight. Um, but I do want to mention just a few to give a flavour of the importance of her work. Her work, State and Social Revolution, established itself as the starting point for all subsequent work in the field of the study of social revolutions. And a later book, Bringing the State Back In, set an agenda which influenced a generation of thinking about the relationship between states and societies. And later, a major study of social policy in the United States, protecting soldiers and mothers, won no less than five major prizes, including prizes from the Social Science History Association, the American Sociological Association and the American Political Science Association. Her recent work has uh, focused on questions of civic activism and engagement, questions of American democracy and the rise of conservatism. And just last year she's published two books, um, The Tea Party and the Remaking of Republican Conservatism with Oxford University Press and Obama and America's Political Future with Harvard. And some of the themes from those books we're going to be hearing more about tonight. Well, Professor Scotchpole has been president of the Social Science History Association, president of the American Political Science Association, and her work has won numerous prizes and awards. In short, she is, without doubt, one of a handful of the most influential scholars working on questions about politics and society in the English-speaking world today. So I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Theda Scotchpole. Well, it's an honor to be here. To, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to, to, to visit London and to see the weather to be just what I expected it to be. Uh, <laughs> But um, uh, seriously, I mean, to give a lecture named uh, after Ralph Miliband, whose work I read as a student and taught as a young faculty member, and of course to be associated with uh, the name of a family that has contributed and is still contributing so much to, to uh, British and, and, and global um, public life is, is a great honor indeed. So today I'm going to talk about some of the things that um, my colleagues and I have uh, come to terms with about the uh, remarkable um, evolution of American politics in, in recent times and try to offer some a longer and broader historical perspective on these events. I look forward to our discussion at the end of my, and my remarks and uh, very much expect to learn from it. I'll start by just reminding everyone of what many of you might have seen on television in 2008 on November 5th when uh, Barack Hussein Obama was elected President of the United States. 
that night in Chicago's Grant Park, a huge and absolutely ecstatic crowd, uh, mixed race crowd, uh, mixed generation crowd, greeted uh, that uh, remarkable event. Uh, that election in 2008 also brought to majority, stronger majorities or majorities, uh, Democrats in, the, in, the, in our House of Representatives and our Senate. Uh, and that's a rare event in the United States in parliamentary systems. The executive and some kind of majority, at least, is patched together uh, at the same time in the legislature. But in the United States, it's much more typical to have divisions. So only rarely, and especially rarely where Democrats are concerned, do you see um, uh, the, the uh, uh, House and Senate in the same hands as the presidency. Not surprisingly, um, the breathless American punditocracy greeted these events with uh, announcements that the entire world was about to change. That was nicely encapsulated in a November 24, 2008, Time magazine cover called the new, for an article, a cover article called The New New Deal that had a picture of Barack Obama in an open convertible with a, a Franklin Delano Roosevelt grin on his face and a cigarette uh, dripping out of his, uh, uh, his mouth. Um, what Barack Obama can learn from FDR was the, the uh, the title article, and the theme of that magazine was very similar to the theme that many analysts were putting forward at that moment in 2008, that not only was this an election where Democrats took everything, but it was probably the beginning of a transformation of the direction of American governmental policy uh, uh, on the global stage and at home that would be accompanied by a transformation of American politics that would be enduring because this president had been elected by a rising coalition, uh, including many young voters. Uh, well, so the, the supposition was that here was something not unlike other big moments, the 30s and the 60s, in which policy change and a new po political coalition would emerge together, grow together, and reinforce one another for the long run. The, the Republican Party was more or less declared dead. Well, flash forward just two years to November of 2010, and it must have looked to people looking at the United States from Europe and like another country had, had voted in, in that election. And, uh, actually, I'll, I'll point out later that another country did vote in, in that election. Um, uh, in November of 2010, the Republican Party, which had been declared dead two years before, uh, scored some of the most sweeping victories in, um, in about 75 years. Uh, 63 seats changed hands in the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, pushing Nancy Pelosi out of the speakership and putting John Boehner uh, in, in charge in that, in that pivotal uh, chamber. Uh, there were big uh, Republican gains in the Senate as well, and even more important, and to those of us who study American politics, there were sweeping gains in a whole series of key states in the Midwest, the South, uh, Supermajorities of Republicans put in charge of legislatures along with Republican governors, giving them the freedom to enact radical policy changes in a short time, which rarely happens in American politics. 
So at that point, you know, suddenly people thought, well, uh, the Obama presidency is over and uh, uh, the transformations that were expected in policy and politics are coming to a screeching halt and may be reversed. As we all know, last November, uh, the pendulum swung at least partly back again. Obama, who had been declared for dead, was pretty handily reelected. Um, and uh, surprisingly enough, Democrats gained seats in the Senate rather than losing them, uh, although the House remains in Republican hands. Now, such startling turnarounds in American politics, and each one of them with policy implications that I'll discuss briefly along the way, um, cry out for a deeper description and, and an explanation. And in this lecture, I'll be summing up some of the findings from two studies that my colleagues and I have done of these things. I assembled a team of historically oriented political scientists and sociologists as the Obama presidency started to track the, the attempted changes in policy directions in a whole series of domestic realms from immigration and environmental policy to labor policy, healthcare policy, educational policy and to uh, find out what was attempted, what happened, what was stalled, and what political reactions there were. And, and boy, were there political reactions. Uh, by a year after that project was launched, I was teaming up with a graduate student, Vanessa Williamson, to do research on the Tea Party that erupted uh, and to understand how it came together, uh, how it managed to change the direction of debates in American politics and what its impact has been on the Obama presidency, the Democratic agenda, and uh, the Republican Party. So what I'm going to do here is comment on three big questions. What happened uh, to those expectations that were launched in the 2008 election? Uh, the long and the short of it is I'm going to be arguing that the policy accomplishments were quite major in the 2009-10 period when Obama and the Democrats were in office together. Uh, at least it was a halfway New Deal, if not the equivalent of a New Deal. Uh, some pretty major policy changes occurred. But uh, the expected transformation of politics in a way that would reinforce the, the political forces that fashioned uh, a new health reform, uh, financial regulations, and regulations in a whole series of other areas, that obviously did not uh, appear. Instead, uh, over those two years, uh, Obama's supporters became increasingly discouraged and feeling that he had accomplished less than, in fact, he did accomplish, uh, and his enemies went berserk. That's a technical term <laughs> to describe uh, an extraordinary explosive reaction uh, of obstruction and, and populist opposition. Uh, to uh, 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 the Obama presidency and Democrats. Okay, so that's the first question I'll deal with. The second, why did the GOP triumph in 2010 and how did it manage to do it while not moving to the middle? Standard political science models assume that when parties are defeated, they move to the middle. Well, that standard model, I've never really thought much of it, but I think it's dead dead as the dodo in explaining American political developments. Um, so how did the GOP triumph while turning hard to the right? And then finally, I'll, I'll conclude with a few remarks of where we are now that 
the 2012 election has blunted the full force of the reaction against Obama's uh, initiatives, uh, but leaving the American politics in a, in a very complex and conflictual and in many ways stalemated place for the immediate future. So let me start with Obama's halfway New Deal. Let's just remember why it was that some of the pundits and analysts were carried away right after the 2008 election and thought this was the start of a reinforcing set of policy and political developments that could be like the FDR New Deal of the 1930s. Not only were Obama and Democrats elected with surprisingly strong electoral majorities for Democrats in, 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 in recent American history, most recent presidential elections have been very closely balanced, but this was a pretty substantial uh, victory in 2008. The coalition that elected Obama and voted for Democrats was on the whole a youthful coalition. In fact, age was the biggest gradient along with race in, in that election and in Obama's support uh, in general. People under age 45 heavily are pro-Obama. So it seems to be the wave of the future. And, and, and that was, it was also a racially diverse election in uh, electorate that supported Obama and the Democrats in, in a society, in a, in a polity, the United States, that's changing rapidly to become more racially diverse with a strong Latino majority as long, along with Asians and, Af and African Americans. Um, it was an election that occurred in 2008 after the Republican Party was in considerable dis disrepute and disarray. Uh, Americans in general were uh, disillusioned with the war policies and the economic policies of the Bush administration and there's, in American politics, it's really good to come to the presidency uh, in a party change after your predecessors and his party have been uh, discredited. That's really great if you're on the upswing. Uh, and uh, Americans seemed very open in a deepening financial collapse and economic crisis to vigorous government action to set things straight. So all of those things led people to believe that this was a moment for a new New Deal, both politically and in policy terms. And in the opening months of Obama's presidency, it seemed to be unfolding that way. Uh, uh, a massive economic stimulus program was quickly passed. I mean, certainly not as massive as Paul Krugman wanted. I mean, it never is. but but um, a, a pretty big uh, for uh, American uh, standards. And it, it made it through Congress. And uh, Obama declared that he was going to pursue comprehensive health reform. He was going to pursue uh, climate uh, change legislation, uh, some form of cap and trade system, and look for reforms in the educational system. And that was just in a few areas. He appointed key people to his cabinet across the border were prepared to move through regulation and legislation in a whole series of innovative uh, ways. And in the opening months of Obama's presidency, he was, uh, all newly elected American presidents are popular for a little while, uh, but he was po very popular uh, for, for several months in, into his presidency. But despite those early signs, it also became clear quite quickly that Obama was up against a series of institutional and political and ideological obstacles 
that we're going to uh, undercut and put brakes on um, policy changes and drain his political support fairly quickly. And here in my work, I've done a little bit of comparison back to the 1930s, not because the 1930s and the 2008 are the same, but because it's instructive to see some of the key differences. So all of you who know your American history will remember that in the 1930s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was another reformist Democratic president who came with Democratic majorities into uh, the government in a moment of uh, huge economic crisis and downturn. But a crucial difference from the situation in 2008, Obama, uh, FDR arrived in the presidency in 1933 when America and the world were four years into the Great Depression. Unemployment was at a 25% level, and all sectors of American society were so desperate for remedial government action that in the opening several months of Roosevelt's presidency, Democrats and Republicans alike, conservatives and liberal alike, and they weren't both, they weren't the same, they weren't all lined up back then, uh, passed legislation he sent to the Congress without even reading the bills, sometimes and by large bipartisan majorities. Uh, Obama, by contrast, won his election and made the transition to the presidency just as a massive financial crisis that would turn into an economic uh, crisis was getting underway. Whereas FDR in the 1930s was able to be very careful to never collaborate with, even acknowledge Herbert Hoover very much as he made the transition to the presidency. In effect, Obama and his advisors were holding hands with Herbert Hoover from the moment, from even before he was elected. They were meeting with outgoing President Bush and his advisors to prevent a massive Wall Street meltdown from turning into a world financial crisis and a second 1930s-style Great Depression. And inevitably, as it turned out, both the economic team that Obama put together, which was heavy with Wall Street-connected economists, and the way the American public perceived what Obama was doing early in his own presidency got melded with what the outgoing Bush administration had been trying to do, especially in the Wall Street bailout. Many American voters by early 2009 thought that Obama's stimulus program, which was really meant to, to save and revive employment, was the same thing as the Wall Street bailouts and the bailouts of the auto industry, which at the time were quite unpopular. So the timing of, and nature of the economic crises in relation to the arrival of the Democratic presidents and reform programs were very different in ways that put Obama at a surprising disadvantage. He couldn't very well refuse to try to shore up Wall Street, in my opinion, and just sit there and let it drop. But because of the timing of things, his program was not constructed as and was not perceived as primarily a jobs program um, 
and that would have consequences over the following two years as the American economy uh, dipped into higher and higher levels of unemployment. Secondly, Obama faced from the very start Republican obstruction. We now know from memoirs what was kind of obvious if you were watching closely at the time. Instead of joining hands with Democrats to vote through emergency legislation to stave off the economic downturn and begin to turn things around, which is clearly what Barack Obama expected Republicans in Congress to do, they instead decided right at the beginning that they would marshal their forces for, to, to vote no. To vote no as unanimously as possible and as consistently as possible from the opening weeks of Obama's presidency, the Republican Party put in place a policy of outright obstruction. And in the U.S. system of government, there are plenty of ways to obstruct, um, including uh, in the Senate, uh, where you can require a supermajority and uh, require every single thing, if you insist on it, to, to take 60 votes. And needless to say, the Democrats did not have 60 votes. It appeared that they might, and they did for a few months after Al Franken was uh, uh, declared elected uh, in the summer of 2009. Uh, but that's even counting Joe Lieberman of, 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 uh, of Connecticut as a Democrat, and that's a very, very dubious proposition. Uh, so there was never any sure 60 votes, even when there were 60 votes, sort of. Next, the atmosphere of ideological and partisan polarization, which obviously informed the obstruction strategy of Republicans, if anything, deepened during this period. And it was different from what happened back in the 1930s. Now, by a couple of years into Roosevelt's New Deal in the 1930s, Republicans and conservative Democrats swung into opposition and placed quite a lot of limits Ira Katznelson's new book, Fear Itself, lays out the way in which pivotal racially segregationist white Southerners in the Democratic Party, as well as some conservative Republicans, limited the New Deal of the 1930s, both internationally and domestically. Nevertheless, back then, ideology and party did not entirely line up. There were conservatives in both parties. There were moderates to liberals in both parties. But by the time Obama came to office in 2008, U.S. politics had been undergoing three or four decades of increasing ideological and partisan polarization, which for about 20 years after the 1960s was a sorting out of Republicans and Democrats as Democrats lost out in the South and became the party of racial liberalism, and whites and, and Republicans took command in the, in, in the former, uh, in, the, in, in the South. Uh, but from the 1980s on, polarization in American politics has been asymmetric, with most of the movement being Republicans to the further and further right, especially on issues of funding government or using government uh, to regulate uh, the economy. So that's what it was like when Obama took office, and it only became more so as the GOP, the Republican Party, adopted um, a policy of outright obstruction. I'll mention a couple of other things that are important here. The American media 
It's very, very fragmented in a way that makes it particularly difficult for a president oriented toward using government to promote change to get a message across to the national population. I think the media everywhere has become more fragmented in the internet age and the age of more television channels uh, and, and dying newspapers under a lot of economic stress. But in the United States case, you have not only those dynamics, but the creation of a 300-pound gorilla in the form of Fox News, which um, is openly aligned with conservatives and the Republican Party and mixes uh, political messages uh, cued by those actors with its news coverage. I'm, I'm wording this all in a very, very polite way, but the fact is that researchers have pinned it down. And Fox reaches about 30% of American uh, television viewers, uh, mostly homogeneously conservative, Republican-oriented, older white viewers who really watch TV a lot. Um, and uh, so any Democratic president has lost those people even before they open their mouth um, because they're going, not going to hear what they have to say and they're not going to hear the truth about it. At the same time, the rest of the media is very divided up into a whole series of competing and economically stressed outlets that often let Fox and right-wing talk radio set the agenda of the controversies that they present. So that media environment has made it much harder for a modern Democratic president and reform-oriented Democrats in the Congress to get any kind of coherent message across about what they're trying to do. On top of that, Obama didn't really try very hard to get across a coherent message about what he was trying to do to revive the economy. For whatever reason, the Obama presidency presented very few speeches, very few explanations uh, to the American citizenry about why the stimulus program was designed to do what it set out to do. And that was a big problem after 30 years of conservative messages that suggested that government spending was inherently bad for the free market economy. Finally, and perhaps most important, if we look at it, you know, cold and hard over the decades, there's a big difference between creating an interventionist set of federal policies that's what we call national policies in the United States in the first place, which is what the New Deal in the 1930s did. It created peacetime, persistent government regulation of the market economy and the major social programs such as Social Security, uh, welfare subsidized in part by the federal government, uh, new regulations promoting labor unions. These were all put in place for the first time in the 1930s, and there's a big difference between the politics of doing something like that for the first time in a big crisis and what Obama and his colleagues were trying to do after 2008, which is to modify an already vast and greatly elaborated set of regulations, social subsidies and social expenditures, and tax programs. Uh, by the time you get to the early 21st century, 
whatever rhetoric you hear out of American politicians, we have a massive, highly elaborated national state with its fingers through regulation, taxes, tax expenditures, which just means you don't have to pay taxes they would otherwise owe, and regulation in every finger of the American economy, in every part of American social life. Obama, in other words, couldn't just say to a national population facing a frightening economic crisis, I'm going to create new programs to help solve this problem. He had to go about it by proposing revisions in already existing elaborated programs. And he had to do it in a situation in which federal budget constraints are very tight in the United States as they are across the world. So for every change he proposed, such as, for example, a health reform that would finally provide subsidized health insurance to low-income and lower-middle-income Americans who have lacked that health insurance while everybody else had it, for every new reform he proposed, he was going to be proposing changes in existing situations for other parts of the population that would impose new costs on them or new regulations on them. In the health reform area, the resources to provide the expansion of insurance coverage under Obamacare come from taxing elderly Medicare recipients who are fairly well-to-do and placing new taxes on insurance companies and health care providers of various kinds and health businesses of various kinds. You can be sure that every one of those privileged interests is well aware of what it's being asked to give up whereas most of the people who would benefit if Obamacare is fully carried into effect don't yet know what they're going to get. They still don't know. Similarly, in higher education policy, Obama proposed to change our higher education loan programs to cut out banks as middlemen who get guaranteed profits for providing loans to middle-class students and use the extra money to reduce the costs of loans to middle-class families and to give greater grants, we call them Pell Grants, to low-income students. Once again, the losers, powerful, elite, well-informed, well-organized, knew exactly what they were being asked to give up, whereas the recipients are just discovering now, if they're discovering at all, what they had to gain. So that was true in one policy after another, that the politics of creating and reshaping a mature regulatory and welfare state is much more explosive and much less favorable to the architect of the, of the reforms than the politics of creating uh, programs to benefit millions of people in the first place. And finally, as Suzanne Mettler has argued in her book, The Invisible State, a lot of what American public programs do is done through indirection, through forgiving taxes that people would otherwise owe. One of our biggest social programs is the home mortgage deduction, where if you own, as I do, two houses, a vacation home and a nice home in Cambridge, you get really nice deductions on your income tax. Um, Health care for most upper middle class 
and, and privileged people in the United States is heavily subsidized with tax credits to the employer. But most people who get those wonderful benefits in America think that they're just free-spirited individual achievers who aren't getting anything from government. Whereas the things that are done for many low-income people, if they're done at all, and they mostly aren't, are done in highly visible ways that can be debated uh, ad nauseum. So many of the things that Obama's reforms did, far from being radical, were actually attempts to adjust many of these invisible uh, programs and various regulations so as not to disturb the status quo too much. But that meant that the benefits were not apparent uh, and the costs, once again, were clear to highly mobilized uh, constituencies. So let me move on now. I think that combination of circumstances in the political timing of the reform attempt in an economic crisis, the ideological conditions, the party conditions, the media, and the difference between creating an interventionist state and reforming it, explain why Obama ended up with what you might say is the worst of both worlds. He made some headway in important policy areas. Along with Democrats, he enacted a, a complicated health reform. He, he enacted, they enacted some of those college loan reforms. They made some headway through regulation in changing in immigration policy and labor policy, but could not get Congress to act in those areas. And they crashed and burned completely in the environmental global warming area. Still, for American politics, where it's very hard to do anything big at all, this president in his first two years after 2008 did enough to at least qualify as a halfway New Dealer. But he didn't get any positive political payoff out of that. In fact, what he got was a lot of discouraged people, particularly because the economy was slipping into higher unemployment the entire period of the first two years. And his opposition was instantly mobilized to oppose everything he was trying to do. Now that brings me to my second puzzle, which I'll move through more quickly because I know we'll dwell on it in the discussion. What in the world happened to the Republican Party during this period? I think when historians look back many years from now, they won't be as interested in Obama's halfway New Deal as they will be in the remarkable rightward lunge and radicalization of the Republican Party. And you know, it's true, I'm not a Republican, and you will have guessed that. <laughs> but this is not an ideological statement on my part. Quantitative political scientists have measures that have been running for 50 years that position uh, elected legislators uh, from these two parties in relation to one another. And they barely have enough room on the right of their charts to measure what's happened to the Republican Party uh, since 2008. And even before that, they, they were right at the edge of the right wing of the charts. Actually, it's this way, that way for you, uh, with what had already happened with the Republican Party. So there's no question that one can show that Republican candidates and elected office holders, national and at the state level, almost all moved hard to the right 
on a whole series of redistributive and regulatory issues and also social issues uh, during this period when standard models would have predicted that a party that lost so badly as it did in 2008 would have been moving toward the center. Well, part of the explanation is the eruption of the Tea Party. It was just a few weeks into Obama's presidency when a commentator on CNBC, a financial news program, went into what it became known as a rant in which he invoked America's founding fathers, um, Jefferson and um, Adams, the Tea Partiers who threw, you know, remember that British tea into the, uh, into the Boston Harbor, uh, to denounce uh, these august uh, presences in American politics were summoned to denounce the mortgage assistance programs of the Obama administration, which was trying not very successfully to provide a little assistance to lower and middle income homeowners whose houses were about to be lost in the economic downturn. Uh, Rick Santelli called on his fellow traders on the Chicago uh, Stock Exchange to appear for a new Boston Tea Party against oppressive government um, at a date a few weeks hence, but his remarks were instantly recycled on conservative talk radio and television. The Obama White House made the mistake of denouncing them from the White House, which they shouldn't have done, but probably wouldn't have changed things much. And within days, uh, the spectacle of older white Americans dressed in colonial costumes, uh, standing on street corners and eventually assembling in regional and then national demonstrations, carrying signs denouncing Barack Obama as a communist, a socialist, and a Nazi, <laughs> all in the same demonstrations were, were going on. Uh, by the summer of 2009, um, a process of creating what ultimately would become, by 2011, 900 local tea parties that meet once a month and sometimes once a week. There's one in Minnesota that meets once a week, and every fourth Monday is movie night, in which you can watch the Ayn Rand epic Atlas Shrugged or the latest documentary denouncing the evils of liberalism, no doubt, including Harvard liberalism. Eventually, uh, um, my research associates and I documented 900 Tea Parties, uh, newly created. By 2010, the demonstrators and the local Tea Partiers, backed up by national advocacy groups that instantly put their spokesmen in front of the cameras, renamed parts of themselves Tea Party, and started uh, channeling money into primary and general elections. By 2010, this all was having an impact not just on national debates on television, but on elections. As uh, very, very, very conservative Republicans knocked off conservative Republicans in one key primary after another. And in my state of Massachusetts, a candidate who was temporarily celebrated as a Tea Party, or Scott Brown, uh, a Republican actually surprisingly defeated um, Democrats who consider themselves to be the owners of a one-party state in, in Massachusetts in our special election to replace the deceased Ted Kennedy. And as we know, in the 2010 elections, Republicans not only scored 
historic electoral triumphs in the middle of Obama's presidency, but uh, those were Republicans in many cases who were Tea Party supported and very, very conservative, uh, especially those that took charge of the House of Representatives. So what was this all about? Uh, Vanessa Williamson and I became very intrigued by that question by, by 2010, and we launched uh, a multifaceted uh, research program that for the graduate students in the audience, I'll tell you, it, it wasn't methodologically correct in any way. We simply threw every known methodology at the problem, and we spent no time at all trying to figure out how to define it in advance or uh, whether Gary King liked our methodology or any of that. Uh, we pulled together all of the quantitative data on national surveys that ask Americans whether they were part of the Tea Party or sympathized with it or knew what it was. Uh, and arrayed them quantitatively. We did analyses of media coverage of the Tea Party, particularly comparing Fox News and CNN over the course of the first two years, 2009 and 10. We uh, did organizational analysis of organizations on the national stage that were calling themselves part of the Tea Party. And in an innovative step, especially for me, as somebody who looks at things uh, macroscopically and historically, uh, we ended up visiting local tea parties in three regions of the United States, New England, Virginia, and Arizona, and uh, persuading individual grassroots tea party activists to sit down with us and talk with us about how they'd organized their local tea parties, what it meant for them, and what they thought about various things in one-on-one -on -one confidential interviews. All the results of that, and we also teamed up with undergraduates to map the 900 tea parties through their websites, which they all had by 2011. All of that's published in our recent book, but let me just hit the highlights here because I think they help us to understand the puzzle of what happened in the Republican Party um, to reinforce the strategy of obstruction that was declared by congressional Republican leaders right away after Obama moved into the White House. In the United States, it's one thing for congressional leaders to declare obstruction. It's another thing for them to get their party followers in our Congress to follow suit. In a parliamentary system, I think there is considerably more discipline. In the United States, frankly, there's really no discipline, at least not inherently, uh, certainly not in the Democratic Party, where you know, the Democratic congressional leaders declare something and, you know, a third or so go do something else. So the puzzle that we need to wonder about in 2009 and 2010 is not so much why Mitch McConnell in the Senate and John Boehner in the House, both in a minority position in those first two years, adopted a policy of, of, of say, just say no. They realized that if they cooperated, they would be implicated in the reforms Obama put in place, and if they refused to cooperate, they might benefit from the fact that the economic downturn was going to leave a lot of Americans disgruntled when the next elections rolled around in 2010. But how did they manage to get everybody, almost to a man and a woman, to vote with them, to refuse to vote for a health care reform that was basically to the right of Richard Nixon's ideas about health reform? and then incorporated many Republican ideas. How did they manage to get all Republicans practically to vote against a cap-and-trade system for global warming 
uh, to fight global warming, which deliberately incorporated market-oriented ideas and was being pushed by a coalition that included business people. So that's the mystery, and I think the Tea Party helps to solve the mystery if we realize that what the Tea Party is is not one thing. It's a set of three forces that played off one another and served to pull the Republican Party to the right and enforce a no-compromise approach to uh, Obama and the Democrats ever since 2009. The three parts of the Tea Party are not part of one united organization. It's best to think of this as a field of organizations that are jostling and leveraging one another. But there are three tendencies. One tendency is right-wing media cheerleading. That didn't create the Tea Party, but it definitely sped up the process of putting in place a powerful, uh, publicly visible opposition. Because you can have a lot of people who want something, but if they're spread all over the place and don't know they're part of something together and don't know where to go to connect with one another, uh, it can take quite a while for them to form a movement if they do at all. In the case of the Tea Party, our research showed that Fox News not only covered events as they happened in 2009, it was out in front telling people that they were part of something big and important and telling people where to go to find out how they could be part of demonstrations and local tea parties. So that's tendency number one. Tendency number two are what we call right-wing roving billionaires. Roving means not really tied to any particular country or any particular state, not even any industry, really, uh, since these are very wealthy people who have been backing ultra-free market advocacy groups that are highly funded and run by professionals. Uh, and they've been in place for quite a while, pushing uh, a program uh, the, uh, that, that really has to be called ultra-free market radicalism. It, it's a program of no government regulations, certainly no government regulations to deal with environmental issues, uh, lower taxes and then lower taxes and lower taxes and lower taxes and lower taxes on the very wealthy and uh, dismantling Social Security, Medicare, and other social programs. Uh, that's the program of the Koch brothers, but they're not the only ones. There are some others. So those two tendencies were definitely there, but what actually provided the drama and the new opportunities for those two top-down tendencies was a genuine populist right-wing upsurge. When Vanessa and I started our research, a lot of people on the left said to us, ah, it's just a bunch of television images, and the Koch brothers are sending them checks. Well, it would uh, be interesting and probably easier to handle this phenomenon in American politics if that were true. What actually happened was a genuine upsurge of anger and fear among people at their peak about 30% of the American population expressing sympathy with, about 15% saying that they did concrete things like send a check or attend a demonstration, and then a hardcore of about 200,000 activists who created the local tea parties, 
that ended up giving this whole thing much more staying power over, much more staying power than Occupy Wall Street, for example. Who uh, are these people? Well, that's what we found out by putting together survey research and face-to-face -face interviews and observations of local Tea Party meetings. They're older, rarely under age 45, mostly in their 60s or 70s. They are always conservative-minded people. They talk to Vanessa and I about Goldwater as if it were yesterday. They have the same memories of Goldwater that I have of Bobby Kennedy. You know, it may be long over, but not in their minds. It's not. They are almost all white. They are at the level of the couch potatoes of the movement, disproportionately men but at the level of the people actually doing the work to organize the local groups, they're at least half and maybe more than half women. Nothing surprising about that. That's the way it always is as an American civic right. <laughs> they uh, are people who vote for Republicans against Democrats, but are critical of Republicans, not from the center, but from the right. Some of them proudly talk about their history in the John Birch Society. Or they consider themselves independent libertarians, or they think of themselves mainly as Christian conservatives. What do they think about government? Well, we were very interested in our interviews and about that. So we started our interviews by asking people to tell us how they found out about the Tea Party. That's how we learned that most of the local groups were new creations, not relabeled groups of another kind, because the people who came together to form them usually met for the first time in those heady first weeks of 2009, when, as one person after another told us in the interviews, I suddenly realized I could stop yelling at the television and do something. And I've gotten to know these other people I didn't know before in our local tea party. I understood what they meant because back in 2000, Cambridge liberals were just yelling at the television. And we didn't do much more than that. Um, so these are people who were energized, but they already had the very conservative and critical views about the Democratic Party, and so were quite aroused by the arrival of solid Democratic government. And they were also quite disillusioned with Republicans who not only had done the things the Bush administration had done, but had lost the election. To a man and a woman, they are fiercely anti-immigrant. We found in all regions of the United States that grassroots Tea Partiers believed immigration to be a threat to the America that they had known. We're convinced that immigrants are heavily undocumented. That's not really true, but... Uh, that's what they think. And we're sure that Obama was about to give away free education and health care to the undocumented or illegal immigrants. On the other hand, when it comes to government regulation of business, they don't believe in that. And when it comes to government regulation of things like abortion and uh, marital lifestyles, they're split. About half of Tea Partiers are Christian conservatives for whom Anti-abortion regulations are very important. Another half are more secular and libertarian who don't agree on that matter. 
And then when it comes to government spending, we were particularly interested because, of course, the reputation of the American Tea Party is that it's against government spending. Certainly, they're all against the stimulus and all against the bailouts. But if they didn't raise it by question seven in the face-to-face interviews, I sort of looked across the table and I would say, well, you've told us about the things you don't like in government. Are there some things you do like? One man said, boy, I didn't see that one coming. Uh, They all answered it. And uh, if they didn't mention Social Security and Medicare and veterans benefits, we raised those. Because those are the most expensive things the American federal government spends its money on on the domestic front. Every single one except one of the people we interviewed told us that Social Security, Medicare, and veterans benefits are fine. Real Americans have earned those benefits. Many of them are on those programs or about to be. On the other hand, they don't want spending on moochers and freeloaders, and those are the words they use. The moochers and the freeloaders are low-income people. Often, it's pretty clear they're talking about people of color, and they certainly are talking about immigrants. But we discovered one thing in our interviews that we wouldn't have known if we had looked only at the national surveys. They also think young people are moochers and often used examples of their own grandsons or granddaughters or grandnieces or grandnephews. People who aren't getting a job, who are moving back in with mom and dad, who think that they should get subsidized college educations when these folks think that's welfare, and who like Barack Obama. As one woman put it to us, those young people, she said, my niece is one of them, two million people saying, Obama, Obama, Obama. It's frightening. It's not the country we grew up in. Our country is being taken away from us. And the guilty parties are younger Americans as well as the usual suspects that would be fingered by any conservative populist or nativist movement throughout American history. So by the end of our work, we realized why this popular upsurge, which is genuinely not funded by the Koch brothers, it wasn't expected by the Koch brothers, it's probably not even wanted by the Koch brothers, because local Tea Partiers are pretty stubborn. They're hard to direct. They don't necessarily go along when the powers that be decide immigration reform would be a good idea. They don't like the idea of getting rid of Social Security and Medicare. So they're their own people, and they are reacting out of fear about a changing America, fears that were certainly exacerbated in an economic crisis that was raising questions about the life savings and the home ownership patterns of those older people, even though they weren't the most economically impacted by the crisis. And they have provided the final piece in the conservative forces impinging on the Republican Party from the right, because now you have billionaires and PACs that will send checks to fund challengers to Republican candidates and office holders who show any signs of compromise or moderation. And you also have half of the Republican Party's election base that consists of exemplary citizens. 
men and women who know how to organize, who follow legislation in detail, who turn out to vote. All the things that make for civic participation in the Robert Putnam world, these people excel at. So that's where the forces have come to both fuel Republican victories in 2010 when two out of five American voters went to the polls rather than three out of five. If you don't remember anything else from this lecture, remember that. Two different American nations vote in presidential years versus midterm years. Midterm years, it's an older, whiter, more conservative electorate which the Tea Party was able to create new oomph in to push not just Republicans into office, but very conservative, non-compromise-minded Republicans. In presidential years, as it turns out in 2012 as well as 2008, it's a more diverse and younger electorate, somewhat tilted toward people in the middle and the lower end of the class structure. And so that's what happened finally in 2012. When Vanessa and I talked to Tea Partiers in 2011, they weren't settled on a Republican candidate. And they never did settle on one because they didn't like Mitt Romney, but they never found a, a non-Romney they could unite behind. Uh, they all turned out, I'm sure, to vote for Romney against Obama because Obama in Tea Party world is the perfect storm of evil. He's a Democrat. He's got a foreign father. For some, it's perhaps the color of his skin. I don't think that's as important as the foreign father. He's a liberal who wants to do health reform for those people. And he's a professor. It's a really bad category in Tea Party land. So they turned out. But the electorate was bigger and more diverse. And by then, most Americans were very turned off by this uncompromising, shrill, I call it kick-ass style of politics. And so Obama was reelected, And he was reelected by a very substantial margin, despite the fact that most Americans remain unhappy with the economy. So what we have now in the United States is a standoff. Because even though Republicans suffered some pretty big setbacks in 2012, they still control many American states, and they control the House of Representatives. Three-quarters of the Tea Party-backed Republicans who won office in 2010 were re-elected again in this last election, even as Obama was re-elected and Democrats gained in the Senate. And Tea Party forces, both grassroots activists and roving billionaire ideologues, are not standing down. They're tough. They're in it for the long haul. They're hoping to make new gains in the midterm election of 2014 when the electorate may be, once again, much smaller and tilted toward conservatives. And they absolutely are not prepared to compromise. Even Republicans who might want to compromise are afraid to do so because they know that if they do, they'll face a combination of activists who turn out to vote against them in primaries from below and checks to their opponents to their right in the next primary election. So this is a trans-party movement 
that has its tremendous impact on American politics by leveraging one of our two major parties, which in turn can leverage national debates and use the obstructive powers of the institutions of American national government to block efforts to mobilize American national government to tackle major problems ranging from global warming to immigration reform and fiscal reform. And even though you will constantly read in the newspaper that most Americans, even about half of Republicans, want this, that, or the other thing, don't ever for a moment imagine that majority public opinion determines outcomes in American politics. That's not the way it works. Perhaps it should work that way. But as long as the Tea Party in its various manifestations is able to execute the pincers movement I have described, there will be powerful forces of obstruction and polarization that will block even very popular Democratic presidents from taking action on a lot of the challenges that the United States needs to meet and that the world needs the United States to meet. So. Okay, well, we've got about 25 minutes for questions. I'm going to start by taking them singly, but if it becomes um, that there's lots, we might take them in numbers. If I call you, could you just wait till the microphone comes and then before you start, just say who you are, please. Um, so can I have that bloke um, up the back there <laughs> with the glasses? We don't have blokes in the United States. <laughs> I don't want being called bloke. Uh, William Chan, American, living in London. Uh, Professor Scott Ball, can you uh, talk can you about... speak up a little bit, please? Oh, sorry, my apologies. Professor Scott Ball, can you talk about a couple of dimensions which I think you alluded to, but which I think would be more fascinating in the, in the future? One is the regional... Uh, I mean, I understand the Tea Party is a national movement, but as someone from the Northeast and originally from the West Coast, I don't view my home American regions as susceptible as much to Tea Party... Um, analysis. That's one one thing. And number two, um, one of the lessons supposedly of the 2012 election is that the Republican Party, or at least the right, had better get their act together on uh, immigrants, especially Hispanics, because if they don't, they're gonna lose national elections, at least not local, but national elections. You know, for the foreseeable future, after a certain point, when Hispanics combined with other minorities, plus plus liberal whites and moderate whites. Uh, will just vote a Democrat. I don't know whether that is something that the Tea Party is just uh, a recalcitrant obstacle to the Republican Party doing or whether or not they are, in fact, um, part of the reason why they have to do this. Thank you. All right, those are both good questions. You're right. American politics is heavily regionalized, and it's more regionalized now than it has been in quite a while. The Democrats are based on the two coasts, um, uh, where the world is quite different. Uh, that's where most environmentalists are, too, in New England and California. Uh, and uh, the uh, Republican Party is uh, really defines the worldview in the South. Uh, and uh, through much of the Ozark-Appalachian uh, chain, the Midwest is the battleground. And uh, that's why you see that fight 
not just in Ohio, but in uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Indiana, uh, in, in, in national elections. Um, if anything, this Tea Party phenomenon has made that more pronounced, but if you look at the map that we have in our book, you'll see that there were Tea Parties in every state, um, and there still are. Uh, Two-thirds of the Tea Parties that we documented as being active in 2011 are still active. Even though they're not as visible nationally, those men and women are still burrowing away at the problem uh, from their perspective. Uh, immigration reform is absolutely fascinating. I mean, as usual, you hear right after the election, you heard American pundits say, well, the Republicans are going to have to change on this, and this is going to happen because Republicans can't win national elections in the future for the presidency if they don't at least reduce the Democratic margin uh, among Latinos in particular. That's true, and it's not a question of winning Latinos because Latinos actually have many reasons for voting for Democrats beyond immigration reform questions, but if they could get the margin closer to 60-40 rather than 75-25, uh, they'd have a much better shot in national elections. The problem is that this issue divides the Tea Party and it divides uh, the Republican Party. It divides the Republican Party for obvious reasons. There are a whole series of issues where Tea Party Republicans, remember about half of Republican identifiers, don't think the same as non-Tea Party identified Republicans, the people who say they don't sympathize with or participate in the, in the Tea Party, but are Republicans. They're much more likely to, be, to think global warming is real. They're much more likely to favor some moderate immigration reform. They, they support government spending for education, for example. Uh, but that half of active, more active, more attentive, more likely to turn out in primary Tea Party voters are very opposed to any immigration reform that provides a path to citizenship. Even if that path winds through dense forests for 13 years. Uh, on the other hand, the elite Tea Party forces that I talked about, the roving billionaire-backed forces, they don't really care what color the people are that they're ignoring. <laughs> they're in favor of immigration reform because they think it might help to save and revive the National Republican Party, which is the vehicle through which they want to, pro to promote their low-tax and anti-regulatory policies. So I don't know how this one is going to turn out. This is going to be quite a drama in which you see the beleaguered Mitch McConnell and John Boehner trying to assemble uh, legislative coalitions to vote for immigration reform that includes some kind of path to citizenship, and you see firm opposition from grassroots Tea Partiers backed by quite a few of the kind of the talking extremists um, like Rush Limbaugh. Okay, now it's clearly a few questions, so do you mind if I take a, take a few? And you can, um, can I have the, the woman um, in the white shirt there, and then after that, this gentleman at the front, and then finally the gentleman with the glasses in the middle? Hi, my name is Alita Edelman. I am a student with Dr. Archer at the LSE. I have a couple of questions for you. Um, the first is, I think it's kind of difficult to talk about the Tea Party without talking about Sarah Palin. Mm -hmm. 
And um, do you think that Republican strategists really understood the degree to which they were going to change kind of the face of their own party in the selection of Sarah Palin, especially kind of in the context of John McCain being, you know, relatively moderate uh, Republican? And the second question is, um, to what degree do you think the social component of the local Tea Party movement is an answer to a gap left by kind of a decline in American civil life, particularly, you know, you were talking about the demographic characteristics of these people, and it seems that a lot of them, you know, are likely to feel marginalized by social change in the United States and uh, economic restructuring. Thanks. Um, this gentleman here. Uh, hello, Professor Scotchwell. So um, just say who you are. Oh, I apologize. My name is Theo. I'm an international relations graduate from 2011. Uh, I have a question about President Obama's leadership. Um, it's been criticized, I think, as being weak. He lacks yeah. the sort of LBJ style of aggressive enforcing of his legislative, uh, legislative agenda, especially when he won in 2012 with a, a sizable majority, and he also won in 2008 with a sizable majority. To what extent in 2009, in that first 100 days, when he decided to focus on health care as opposed to the economy, did that damage his legislative agenda? Uh, in his first term, and to what extent is maybe focusing on, uh, for example, Newtown and gun, uh, gun legislation in the first 100 days of his second uh, term has affected his legislative agenda going forward from here. Okay, thank you. And uh, the, have you got a microphone there? <coughs> the, the, this, this bloke with the glasses here and the light blue shirt... Uh, hello, David Landon Cole, um, ASIN, Association for the Study of Ethnicity and Nationalism at LSE. Um, as much as we had a discussion about um, ethnicity and race, how does gender factor into this? I was fascinated, and I didn't expect it at all, that you found that of the leadership of the Tea Party, there, there was perhaps 50% or more women, but, um, and this is a technical term, the Republicans sucked when it came to women at the elections. They, they had horrible... Uh, ratings. Can, they, can the Republicans or the Tea Party win without women? And do you have the same split um, w as you do with immigration um, and ethnic and racial politics there? Okay, that's quite a lot. Um, Sarah Palin, um, she, she actually uh, exploded uh, um, McCain's chances to win the presidency in 2008 because um, actually American women were the first to bail. The men stuck with her a little longer because, I mean, she's riveting to look at. <laughs> and she knows how to use it. I mean, she's, she's uh, an adept uh, political actor. Um, so I think that by the time we got to the Tea Party that we were studying, uh, the romance with Sarah Palin was over. And in fact, you know, I found it kind of interesting when we did our grassroots interviews. I mean, if you go to a Tea Party meeting, which we did, um, first of all, they're organized very traditionally. I mean, they start with a pledge of allegiance to the flag where everybody stands. They may have a prayer, and that's a variable. I mean, we were interested. Did, it, did they have a prayer along with the pledge at the local meeting? And if the prayer is there, is it mentioned Jesus or not? Because there are some Jews in, in, in the Tea Party. Um, I mean, they're Russian Jews. but um, So that can be an issue of contention, and it often is a contentious issue in local Tea Parties, whether they're going to meet in a church or not. 
but in many places the churches are the only big spaces for meetings. So anyway, the local tea parties uh, raise money the way churches do with little baskets for contributions, and the ladies will cook, do, do the bake, they will bake things that you buy. I've always bought several. But there's usually a, uh, you know, there's a table with concession stuff, with uh, Sarah Palin biographies or um, denunciations of liberals. Or in the main Tea Party meeting that I visited, there was a, I thought this was extremely creative, there was a, a sweatshirt with a picture of a snowy mountain, and uh, it was called Snow Removal, with Olympia Snow, the moderate Republican senator from Maine, falling down the mountain. Uh, and their pocket constitutions for sale and their little bejeweled tea party pins made in China for sale. <laughs> so Sarah Palin's biography was always there. That's a way of saying that local tea party people admire Sarah Palin. But when we got to our last question, which was who is your candidate for the 2012 Republican nomination, we didn't find anybody who supported her. And that's because, as one woman said, we admire her, but we know she can't win. So these are pragmatic people. They were looking for a winner they could admire. And she wasn't really the leader of, of, that captured their imagination by, by the time we got to 2011 and 12. Now, our map of local tea parties enables us to do something that American political scientists love to do. They like to geocode things and then, you know, kill you with statistics about how many minorities there are in a given area or how many this or that or the other thing. And we didn't do that, not because we're against quantitative number crunching, we're not against it at all, but our field work led us to believe that local tea parties were often located in places where you would find snowbirds. For example, they're dense on the ground in Arizona. But a lot of the older people who attend those meetings are from Ohio, Michigan. They have recently moved to the area as retirees. And the Peninsula Patriots that we visited on the eastern shore of Virginia had a lot of new arrivals to the area, either because they came there for business or they were semi-retirees. So it would be wrong to read too much into the exact geography of these things. But what I do think is true is that local tea parties are more likely to be in suburban and fairly wealthy rural areas, not in the poorest areas. In the poorest areas, they're really still just dealing with their evangelical church. They don't really need another tea party. I mean, they're going to tell the national polls that they sympathize, but they don't, they've got a social context. That's my hypothesis, anyway. Whereas I think these tea parties, which we found to be almost all newly formed by people who did not know each other before they organized the tea party, often using things like meetup technology on the website, or an ad in the local newspaper, uh, or meeting some people in a demonstration in a public place and deciding to organize a local tea party, I think that they didn't grow out of pre-existing social capital, but they did, as you suggest, create a new set of social bonds for like-minded people who maybe were a little bit at loose ends 
in that setting that they were sometimes newly moved into. Um, is Obama a weak leader? You know, I don't really think so, but I'm, a, I'm in a minority. Where I come from, Cambridge, Massachusetts, everybody thinks that the key to political activity is for the president to give a speech that mentions your issue. I didn't find a single person in the Tea Party who was so foolish as to think that. They know that organizing and pressuring Congress is the key to American politics. And that's because Obama can give all the speeches he wants. If he can't get it through the House of Representatives, it isn't happening. And from the beginning, he has faced the dilemma that when he openly supports something, he automatically generates several dozen more people opposed to it. And, you know, the hardest thing for us in our research, coming from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where everybody thinks Obama's weak, is to understand how these Republican activists, half of the Republican base, I keep reminding you, think that this guy is the embodiment of Hitler and Stalin rolled up into one. We worked so hard to understand where that view came from because it wasn't intuitive. <laughs> and all I can say is that he arouses fear because he symbolizes the kinds of change, generational, racial, social, as well as being a Democrat. And remember, these same people went berserk when Bill Clinton came into office, backed by two houses of Democrats. There's something about conservatives in America in this last 40 years that they do not accept the legitimacy of a Democratic Party-led government. And that's a constant. But it's exacerbated by the various characteristics that make Obama the perfect storm. So he's had a hard time, especially since it doesn't really work for Democratic presidents to try to push Democrats around. I mean, Democrats often won't do what they're told to do. Um, Obama had a lot of successes in his first two years in the face of determined obstruction. And much of his success had to do with the iron capacity of Nancy Pelosi to command and assemble majorities in the House of Representatives. But she could lose a couple dozen each time and still do that. Think about the situation now. Not only is Obama facing a substantial Tea Party-infused Republican opposition that has majority control in the House of Representatives, he also has to deal with a hopelessly beleaguered Speaker of the House, John Boehner. Just look at the man on television and you will see how miserable he is. <laughs> He is a good old boy, Chamber of Commerce, let's make a deal, Republican. And he is dealing with about 70 to 100 members of his caucus who want to drive the U.S. government into the ground. He can't make a deal. He says he won't, but he can't. So exactly what is Obama supposed to do? Now, I'll hand it to you, the guy is kind of mild-mannered. And he even drives me crazy when he makes preemptory concessions. 
But he is trying to deal with this relatively hopeless situation. And I'll just say, don't underestimate Barack Obama. What he's doing right now looks extremely weak. He's offering some concessions. He's kind of doing his best to beg this hopeless lot of people to make a deal with him, and they're not going to make a deal with him. Uh, maybe immigration reform won't even happen. I think I give it 50-50. But he will do his best to hold it against them in the midterm elections. He will do his best to build a stronger Democratic minority, if not a majority, in the House. He's got his eye on that. And everybody wrote the guy off in 2010, and he, he and his campaign won a commanding victory in, a, in an election in which they basically kneecapped uh, Mitt Romney. So he's not weak. Um, let's let's take. Don't, don't feel obliged to answer everything. Oh, gender. We'll get, we'll I'm going to just more. say that that I, I I think it's quite striking that there's a, a disconnect between what you see on the ground in uh, a relatively gender equal, even women often in the leadership situation in local Tea Parties, and the obvious fact in national polls that Tea Partiers like Republicans and conservatives in general are 55 percent men. Uh, and in national elections, the Republican Party is locked into a position that's anti-choice on abortion questions and uh, also opposed to many educational and social expenditures that women tend to support across all racial and class groups. Um, I don't think that that will change very easily, uh, but it's a mistake to see gender tendencies in the electorate and in the issues as the same thing as all women go one way or all women go the other way. American right-wing forces have always had strong women. Remember Phyllis Shafley, who was the woman who traveled the world to argue that women should stay at home. Right. Um, can I take three people again? Uh, the gentleman there, and then after him, the woman up the back. And then oh. there was someone here, this woman with the purple shirt. And I promise to come back to the health reform question. Uh, I Professor, know I as you wrestle with the, with the notion of the uh, Tea Party, um, I'm a, I'm, my name is George Davis. I'm in Iraqi. We have been at the receiving end of the uh, defunct and uh, so-called democracy of the United States. You have a system where every two years the world is held to a ransom because they have to appease the single interest bodies like the gun lobby, like the Jewish lobby, like the, gun lo uh, the mafia lobby. You have to support those and, and, and uh, work for, for the benefit of those. The country, the American nation, with, with the, all its achievements, it surprises me and it beggars belief that it has, it, has, it has no notion at what goes on around, around the world. You spoke about the Tea Party as if they were some intellectuals. The, I, my perception of the Tea Party are pre predominantly from as, as a, are the 
please excuse me if I've used the wrong uh, expressions, the redneck, uh, middle belt, Americans, Bible bashing, people who don't believe in Christianity. I'm a Christian Iraqi, but you don't know, you have no idea or the first notion about Christianity. You, you uh, speak about the Tea Party as if it is of some relevance. I am surprised nobody has labeled Obama as a terrorist. They've labeled him everything else except terrorists. Sorry, sir. Can I just ask you to come... Because we've got only got a few minutes yes, left. And, and I, I, please, if you could just quickly come to a question. I'm, I'm because getting a to the point. People. Obama has not done anything because if he has done anything or he wants to do anything, he wants to solve the Palestinian problems. He will never do that. And he will, he, he will, go, he will rather turn his back on that issue which has been haunting the Middle East for, since 1948. Okay, I thank so, you. Uh, okay, Obama and the Palestinian problem. Um, this woman up the back here, please. Um, if you could just, just be, say who you are and be oh, succinct. Right. Hi, okay. Um, my name is Pan Sivan uh, Singh, graduate student, general member of the public. Um, two, two, two of your three points about the Tea Party I, I, I have questions about. First, uh, aren't there roving billionaires on the left as well? You know, Warren Buffett uh, often yes. publishes quite a number of op-eds. Yes, they're not as uh, many. Right, right. So uh, I mean, uh, we'd be I happy guess, to have more. But you know, <laughs> so I wondered if, if, if that constellation, or if there was a that there was your explanation centers on a critical mass of roving billionaires leaning right. Second of all, I think. Um, no, not when really. There, this is not an economically determinist thing. When you're a billionaire. Your personal quirks and ideologies are magnified in their impact. I didn't say there weren't any billionaires on the left. I just said there are some playing a role in the Tea Party. Right. Uh, second point about the um, right-wing media. I wonder if, if we perhaps dig a little deeper into the issue of media, whether or not the social media landscape ends up uh, somehow leading um, Traditional sort of you know print media establishments. For example, if one looks at a, a website such as Reddit, right. um, you see the disproportionate influence of a, a, a small mob, right? But there's a complicity there because the New York Times, the CNN, um, they all end up, you know, within a couple hours following these sort of uh, critical mass, you know, right wing leaning social media websites. So, you know, which which well, one? Well, as I other? said, there's a big right wing sector. And many of the other outlets compete to, to argue about the themes that are raised on the right. I mean, there's a whole chapter of our book about the way American media works now, and I just hit a couple of highlights. But there are some very interesting dynamics. They're also very generational. Most of the people who watch television now are older. And so uh, media works differently in elections where a lot of older people predominate versus those that include more young voters. Okay, and then lastly, the woman in purple down here, please. Um, hi, Professor Scotchpole. My name is Morgan Johnston-Baugh from Wellesley College, and um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the concept of uh, moral time by Donald Black, but I'm wondering if uh, the Tea Party has been propelled by um, the fear and anger, as you mentioned, as well as the view that um, government programs are seen as um, artificially lifting up um, 
the moochers, such as uh, minorities or young people, and um, the resentment that comes from that. Well, that's certainly how they look at the world, and they see frightening changes that are, as they say again and again, taking America away from us, or meaning that my grandchildren will not grow up in the America that I know and love. Uh, I think this is very much a, uh, a movement of older people who are looking at time getting away from them. Uh, it happens to older people. I can tell you because I'm their age contemporary. Um, some of the things that they experience are the kinds of things that all older people experience. It's just that they take on a partisan and sometimes racial edge in uh, this segment of the older population. I want to come back to the questions that the Iraqi gentleman raised. Um, you said that to you the Tea Partiers seem like rednecks, and I think I forgot to report one of the statistics that comes out in both the statistical analyses of national Tea Party sympathizers and supporters, and we saw it in our face-to-face -face interviews as well. We always cross-checked our interviews, which of course were not representative, against representative national samples wherever we could. And both sources show that Tea Party grassroots people are more educated on average than the typical American. Now, that means less than it might because they're older. But uh, they are not uneducated. Uh, when I told that to Derek Bach, the former president of Harvard, he became distressed. <laughs> because he thinks and I think this is a common presupposition, that education naturally leads to enlightenment. And it is true that although Tea Party grassroots people are quite exemplary civic activists, they are, as we put it in the book, factually ungrounded. <laughs> they believe utter nonsense about a lot of things. And it was quite something to sit there and write down <laughs> some of the utter nonsense that they believed and not be able to argue back. But they are not uneducated, and the research shows that educated people are more adept than less educated people at absorbing whatever information or misinformation is at hand to reinforce their views. And they are not rednecks. Uh, I mean, there are rednecks in America, don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> but they are not really the, the core of the Tea Party uh, uh, support. And as for U.S. democracy being um, in hoc to lobbies, well, yes, it is to some degree. Uh, you know, I talked about the centrality of Congress. And the fact is that any group like the National Rifle Association that can organize intensely committed people across many districts and marry that to big money, which is what the NRA does, can have a lot of leverage in Congress and can prevent even very popular reforms from getting through. So that's something that you will see in certain instances, and it could happen with this immigration reform stuff again. On the other hand, uh, the United States is a great democracy. Here's where you're going to hear the American in me. 
and I'll come to Britain and say these things. We are one of the world's greatest democracies, not because everybody votes or not because everybody's good and not because our politics isn't distorted in various dangerous and frightening ways, but because we have shown an ability as a society to absorb people from all over the world, including Iraqi immigrants, and they become part of America and very active and positive contributors to America. That doesn't mean that we don't do some very bad things in our foreign policy. But when it comes to the invasion of Iraq, that was cheered on by the British as well as by the United States. It took two to bring about that disaster. And as for Obama and the Middle East and solving the Palestinian problem, he's not solving it, but as you say, it's been there for a long time. He's made some attempts. I expect Secretary of State Kerry to make some more attempts, but there's no reason why any American should look out and be optimistic about the ability of Palestinians and Israelis to get together uh, to come to the obvious solutions uh, to their problems. And the United States has at least withdrawn from Iraq and hopefully under Barack Obama, will not bomb Iran. So, you know, I guess I don't accept the idea that the United States under Obama has been as bad as the United States is capable of being. <laughs> <laughs> Is there well, we do to some degree. We are not perfect. At our best, we try to do that. And sometimes we're at our best. All right. Thank you. Um, I, I, we, we've run somewhat over already. I, I just right. want to say a few words um, in conclusion. I mean, thank you very much for canvassing a really wide range of questions about contemporary politics as well as about the discussion that you put forward in your talk. I mean, I think what you've said helps to think us through some more general issues about why it's proving difficult to seize the potential for realignment that appeared to be there for progressive forces in the wake of the financial crisis. Why, as you say, there's only been a half New Deal at best. And also to give us some food for thought about why a kind of fear-driven right-wing lunge, as you put it, has been able to gain a hold in a fellow English-speaking society. And you know, as we sit tonight, if we are sitting tonight watching the local government elections coming in with uh, UKIP and all their followers, it, there might be a, a bit more pertinence to this in the country where we are now than is actually comfortable for us. So let me just end by thanking you very much, Professor Scotch-Pole, for an excellent discussion and an excellent talk. Thank you. All.